Turn, if you would, to the 14th chapter of the book of Romans. I see that Ted is going to start Romans. I guess they're going to fix all my mistakes. Oh, well, it had to happen. Last week, we finished off the 13th chapter after... uh, two weeks ago covering politics and getting off of that as fast as we could. Last week we talked about the fact that we owe each other a debt of love and that love is the fulfillment of the law. It is not the replacement of the law. It isn't the law went away. It is that if you show love, you are fulfilling the law. And we talked about at the bottom line that we are to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. So today we pick up in chapter 14. And we're going to cheat and start at the bottom and work our way up, sort of. We're going to look at three verses, actually one verse and two half verses, as we develop our introduction to chapter 14. Start at the very beginning, the last sentence of the chapter, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We're going to continue to talk about application. We're going to continue to talk about how we decide what to do. And what the chapter is going to tell us is that there is a religious, a spiritual implication to everything that we do. The bottom line of the chapter is if you cannot do something in faith, don't do it. Wait a minute. I eat lunch. I go to the bathroom. I sleep. What what is the faith component of all of these things? We'll talk about throughout this chapter. Uh, Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. At the end of the day, at the end of our life, there is going to be a reckoning of what we do. Now, this is not a reckoning that will determine our salvation. Our salvation is determined by our relationship with Jesus Christ. We talked about that. We ended that up in chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. But we are going to be accountable for our actions in this world. And finally, verse 5, the second half of it, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind about what you should do. And that's what we're going to spend some time talking about today is that half a verse. And if we can make it through, we'll go back to verse 1 and start working our way through the chapter. I have a confession to make. I never liked this verse. But as somebody who actually believes the Bible is true, I also know that if I don't like a verse, there's nothing wrong with the verse. There's something wrong with me. The reason I don't like this verse is it seems, it appears to teach you that if you think it's right, it's right. If you are convinced that you're doing the right thing, then by all means go do it because it's the right thing to do. Well, we see this throughout the Old Testament. Whenever the scripture wants to talk about people being really bad, what it says is, They each did what was right in their own eyes. Oh, I think I'll do this. And off they did. 
and that was an abomination. So clearly this verse doesn't mean if I think it's right, it must be right. Then what does it mean? It means that we should, we should work to understand moral situations so that we can become convinced in our own minds that what we're doing is right. It's not that the first thing that comes into your mind is right. It's that you are to convince yourself how, what, when you should do certain things. And we're going to talk about how to become fully convinced in your own mind. But first, an example. I am a math major. We do math problems. This is the definite integral between 1 and 2 of x cubed plus 2x times the derivative of x. Now, I gave you the answer to that problem. Question. How many of you are fully convinced that that is the answer to that problem? Now, you might believe it because I put it up there. But I could be lying to you. Let's just have a show of hands, okay? How many of you have any clue how to solve that problem? We've got a handful. You took calculus. How do you become convinced of the solution to this problem? Well, you need some basic math skills. You have a question? No, I don't. No, I don't. It's a definite integral between 1 and minus 2. <laughs> First, you need to understand, you know, basic arithmetic, how to add, subtract, all that kind of stuff. Then you need to learn algebra real well so that you can manipulate equations. Then you go to calculus 1 where you learn derivatives. We start with the limit, we work to our way to derivatives, and then the inverse of a derivative is the integral. That's what that little strange symbol in the front is. And then you do definite integrals where you take one and anyway. If you went through that process, if you stepped through that, you could become convinced that that's the right answer. And I do believe it is the right answer. I was actually surprised. I got out the calculus textbook. I picked an odd number problem. Why? Because the answers are in the back of the book. <laughs> but I worked the problem, and I got it right. I was, I was so impressed with myself. <laughs> Last year, my, uh, well, when I mean, she does it now, my wife teaches uh, some math classes. And last year, she was going to be late for a class, so I filled in for her for a little while, okay? I'll stick with y'all. Stay away from the kids. <laughs> so this one kid acted like he knew the answer to everything, so I threw some outrageous math problem on the board. It wasn't this one, but it might as well have been. And he said, the answer's five. Well, first off, the answer wasn't close to five. But he was real, real confident that the answer was five. I mean, he wanted to argue with me that the answer was five. Why? I don't know. He wanted it to be five. There is a process. 
as you mature in studying math, you begin to understand, first off, what this problem means, and secondly, how to solve it, and how to check the answer to make sure it's right. Well, obviously, Paul is not talking about calculus. How do we become convinced in our own minds that what we're doing is right? Step number one, we study the scripture. The will of God, here, write this down. I've had people argue with me about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The will of God will not violate the word of God. Okay? People want to give illustrations of people who did bad things and accomplished God's will. Rahab. Rahab lied, supposedly, to the people of Jericho to save the spies, and God used that to accomplish his purposes. Okay? That doesn't mean you can lie. (laughs) In order to understand what God would have us to do, we need to become so integrated with the Scripture that we begin to think like God thought, thinks, like Jesus thinks, like Paul thought, like Moses thought, so that we understand life the way they did it. The will of God will never violate the Word of God. Secondly, prayer. Ask God, God, what should I do? And expect the Holy Spirit to respond. I've told you the example in here before where I've studied Scripture and didn't understand what they meant. And at some point, some situation occurred, and God says, that Scripture, this is what it means. We should pray and we should expect God to direct us to what we ought to do. And finally, we should seek counsel from godly, mature believers. Who is that? Who are those? Well, we have people in authority over us. Go ask Ted. Go ask the elders. Go ask the staff of this church. What do you think about this situation? Each of you should have in your life mature believers who you can go to to ask certain questions. I believe God is leading me in this path. What do you think? You might also include those who are affected by the decision. That would be like your spouse. Okay? We pursue an understanding of what God would have us to do by following a process like this. This is a long way from, well, it seems good to me, I think I'll go do it. Particularly when we get to this last sentence, pursuing godly counsel. Because you know what happens, right? I've got it in my mind that I need to dump my wife. Okay? So what do I do? I go find some divorced people and I discuss it with them. I discuss the fact that, you know, she's not treating me white. She's not, I mean, you know the story, right? And they go, yeah, I know the story. Dump her. (laughs) They're not godly, mature people. You look at uh, something like this and you go, yeah, but that's rather complicated. I mean, am I supposed to do this for every decision of my life? 
Well, the answer to that question is yes. Whatever is not done of faith is sin. Is it that complicated? Yes and no. It is complicated because there are decisions in your life that are complicated. Let's just accept the fact. Not every decision can be determined by flipping a coin. Let's make up another example. And this is just a made-up example. I decide that I'm getting promptings from the Holy Spirit to become a missionary. What do I do? Well, I go read the Scripture. Good things to say about missionaries, about spreading the gospel. The Scripture says, that's a good thing, go do it. Okay, tick that one off the list. I pray about it. I have a prompting of the Holy Spirit. I go talk to godly people. I talk to people who are missionaries. And they raise good concerns. You know, you're a little bit old to be starting. Okay, but that's okay. Uh, Maybe you should try starting with a short-term mission trip and seeing how it goes. They offer godly counsel. And wrapping all of that with prayer, I think, okay, I'll pursue that path. And that could take a while to work through that process. So in that sense, yes, it is complicated. But in another sense, it's not that complicated. Because most of the decisions that we make, we know what the right decision is. Back to the earlier example. I decide that I'm going to dump my wife for a cute young thing. So I go to the scripture. How do you think that's going to stand up? Proverbs 5 tells us to rejoice in the wife of our youth. Huh. I'll pray about it a little bit. Not much comfort there. I go talk to my godly friends. Pastor Ted, I've got a question for you. I want to dump my wife and go after some cute young thing. Do you think that's okay? What do you think he's going to say? I know the answer to this question. I know what is right to do. Why? Because I've studied the scripture. I've been through decisions like this before. I know that's why we don't do this. Because we don't like the answer. We are called to be fully convinced in our own minds that what we're doing is in keeping with God's will and his word. That's what we're called to do. question and here's the question for the lesson is it possible for two people to follow this list and it's a short list other people have longer list whatever is it possible for two sincere believers to follow this list and come up with a different answer Should we have a show of hands? My good fundamentalist upbringing cringes at that thought. But the answer is yes. Chapter 14 is about what to do when you and I disagree about behavior in our Christian life? And I'll tell you the answer. 
We're supposed to acknowledge the fact that you don't report to me, I don't report to you, I report to God, you report to God. But if my behavior is causing you to stumble, I should stop. But I shouldn't despise you, I shouldn't reject you, I should continue to love you because we are both believers. But I look through this process and I go, okay, is the scripture going to tell us two different answers? Well, we don't like that, do we? But there is an acknowledgement that the scripture doesn't tell us everything about everything. It tells us everything that is necessary for salvation and godly living. And one of the things it tells us about godly living is how to put up with people who have a different view of godly living. Hmm. Maybe we should start chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. This is verse 1. But not to quarrel over opinions. Not to quarrel over opinions. What does your verse 1 say, Van? Not to doubtful disputations. Go ahead. Not passing judgments on their opinions. This is what we are going to refer to as disputed matters. Now, before we get too much further, we need to understand what a disputed matter is and what it's not. The easy answer about what a disputed matter is, it's anything people dispute over. That's kind of easy, right? I've told you before, in my high school English class, when we were studying Julius Caesar, and one of the questions on the test was, what is a soothsayer? And I answered it, a sayer of suits. <laughs> I got it wrong. <laughs> there are those who want to believe that a disputed matter is anything that people dispute. Let me tell you something. That's not a disputed matter. Why? There is not a single doctrine of Christianity that is not disputed. There is not a single, a single action, bit of morality tied to Christianity that is not disputed by someone. So if we say... Everything that is disputed is a disputable matter, therefore we can't make judgments upon them, then the whole book of 1 Corinthians goes away. Because the whole book of 1 Corinthians is a lot of condemnation about why are you putting up with this person who's living with fill in the blank. There are obviously things that in the scripture are said to be right and things that are said to be wrong, and those are not disputed matters. 
I will give you an example. There are easy examples. I'll give you a harder example, though. Are you ready for this? The biblical view of human sexuality is not a disputed matter. Wait a minute. Every psychologist today will tell you that sex outside of marriage is part of the maturing process and it's okay. I don't care. 78% of Christian young people who get married have had sex before marriage. It must be, no, I'm not, it's not. Just because something is disputed doesn't make it a disputable matter. How do we make that judgment? How do we understand that problem? Well, look at the first bullet up there. Study of Scripture. We need to understand how most people understand the Scripture. And I'm talking about those people out there, but unfortunately I'm talking about a lot of us people in here. Most people today believe the Scripture is a nice old book written at some point in history to reflect the morality of the times, and we all know that morality evolves, right? We all know that things change with the circumstances, right? And you know what they said then doesn't apply today. I mean, because they were naive, right? They were stupid. They didn't even know where babies came from. So they decided that Mary had a virgin birth. Trust me, they knew where babies came from. It doesn't take a medical degree to figure out where babies come from. The distinction is if we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God and that it accurately reflects God's will, human nature, and what is expected of us, then we will look at the scripture differently than if we believe it's a human document that evolved and it has good pieces to it. You know, we like some of these good parts, but it has other parts that we don't really like. So we're going to dispute those areas. When you go talking to godly mature believers, you need to understand what their view of the scripture is. Because there are people who understand the scripture much better than I do, who have studied all the original languages, who understand and they don't believe a word of it is the inspired word of God. So, if the scripture says something is right, then it's right. And if the scripture says something is wrong, it's wrong. But, there are some things that the scripture does not clearly address. There are some things that it sort of addresses. For example, I'll give you an example that we've used in here before, drinking. I grew up being taught that drinking was wrong. I would suspect many of you were taught the same thing growing up. I think it's interesting. I, under, I think I was taught that because my dad having grown up as an athlete, was taught that athletes shouldn't drink. My, how we've progressed. (laughs) 
There are scriptures that clearly say being drunk is wrong. But I have progressed to the point that I understand if you want to have a glass of wine with your dinner, who in the world am I to tell you no? Now, it is interesting, one of the Proverbs says that alcohol is not right for leaders because it might influence them to make bad judgments. It didn't say that it was wrong for everybody. And I would contend today, if you were going to leave here and become a missionary to Germany, you ought to understand how to drink a good glass of beer, okay? Because that's where they're going to take you. And you know what? That's okay. <gasps> what do we do when someone who is a sincere believer, who has studied the scripture, who has prayed, who has talked to godly friends, ends up in a different place than we are. Now, the other thing we need to understand, though, is maturity. Okay? The day you became a believer... I know you might find this hard to believe. The day you became a believer, you didn't know it all. The day you die, you won't know it all. <laughs> and all of us are somewhere on this path of maturity. You started first grade, and they told you that one plus one equals two. And then you moved up to one plus two and one plus three, and then you moved on to two times three, and then you moved on to four divided by two, and then you moved on to two X equals four. What does X equal? And then you got more and more complicated equations, and eventually, if you were so inclined, you got to definite integrals. There was a path of maturity. That shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that fellow believers are at different places on that path. We are to acknowledge that. We are to acknowledge that there are people who are just starting out, that we should acknowledge the fact that there are people who have been believers for years yet still struggle or don't struggle, that's what really bothers us, with certain issues. Back to Romans 14. Eventually, I'm going to read through this passage. <laughs> As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> yes. What is it the what is the what is the old Indian word for what vegetarian? Poor hunter? <laughs> Something like that. I am at the church. No, I live in hmm, I don't know, Corinth. Okay? 
I live in Corinth around the turn of the millennium. The Romans occupy the place. There are temples. There are temples that offer sacrifices. So they bring in the animal. They slit the animal's throat. They spread some blood around. looks familiar, right? And then next door is the meat market. Because I've slit the throat of this animal. I've drenched the blood. I look around. I've got some good steaks. I toss them over to the guy at the meat market. I get a cut. He gets a cut, literally, figuratively, whatever. (laughs) He makes money. I make money. Life is good. I, a member of this community, go to the meat market and I buy a steak. Hmm, that looks good. I think I'll take that one. You know that was sacrifice. I don't care. Off I go. And one day, I accept Jesus Christ. Through Paul, through one of his, one of his friends, I don't know, I accept Jesus Christ. And I know, without question, indisputably, that I am not to participate in idols. I am not to visit the idol. I am not to bow down to an idol. I am to have nothing to do with idolatry. So I go to the meat market, and I look at that steak, and what do I think about? That steak was from an animal that was sacrificed to that God who I know is not real. I don't think I'll eat that steak. In fact, I don't know where any of the meat around here came from. I'll stick with the vegetables. And that's what you do. Now, your study of Scripture said, don't put up with idols, okay? Don't don't have anything to do with idols. Idolatry is bad. It's evil. If you read the Old Testament, that's what led the nation of Israel astray over and over and over again. Don't do it. So the study of Scripture says, I shouldn't participate by buying this meat that was sacrificed to the idol. Prayer. I pray about it. I wait for the Holy Spirit to tell me, you know what? I'm not really convinced in my heart that I should do it. I speak, seek counsel from godly people. And what do they tell me? Anything that is not done of faith is sin. If you are not convinced in your own mind, if you do not have peace about it, don't eat the meat. Now, I've been a believer for a while. I'm in Corinth. I know that that meat is just meat. That's all it is. The idol is fake. I'm not having anything to do with the idol. The idol is fake. The meat is cheap. I'm going to have a steak. I'm going to enjoy my steak. I study the scripture. It doesn't say thou shalt not eat steak that at some point in its life was presented to an idol. It doesn't say that. I have prayer, you know, I have no problem with it. I know, Paul is going to say this in a moment, that anything to eat is clean. Go do it. 
I go seek counsel from godly believers. What do they tell me? The Holy Spirit tells you it's okay? Yeah. Is the steak good? Yeah. Will you invite me over for dinner? Sure. (laughs) Two believers arriving at a different place on an issue that is, in fact, disputable. Now, I'm over here eating my plate of vegetables. And coming from the house next door, I have this aroma (laughs) of grilled steak. And what do I think? I begin to despise them because they are participating in something that I feel is immoral. I'm over here eating my good steak. And I look over next door, and they're eating in the backyard, and they're eating cauliflower. (laughs) What am I going to think? Those stupid, naive (laughs) believers, don't they know it doesn't matter? Don't they know? And what Paul tells us, is if I despise them or if I look down on them, I am violating the love of Christ. We're probably not going to make it today, but we will next week. What it's going to tell us is if my eating the steak causes them to stumble, I shouldn't do it. But that's next week's lesson. Today, it's just, how do I handle that person? How do I deal with that person? One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. We are dealing here with believers We're not dealing here with the pagan. We're not dealing with the person who took the animal, offered the sacrifice, and then took the steak home. We're talking about believers here. And God has welcomed both of them. Don't despise. Don't look down on. Now, it is interesting here, just as an aside... We sometimes think that the holiest people, whoever they might be, have the strictest rules. Okay? I'm holy because I don't do check, 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 check. Where do we get this from? Good old-fashioned Pharisees. I'm better than you because I... Follow the Sabbath laws in ways that you cannot even imagine. You can't even think of all the ways that I follow them. I'm so strict, scares the bejeebers out of me. What's interesting about this passage is that the mature believer has the most freedom. Think about that. The mature believer 
knows that that food doesn't matter. It doesn't. This is something that the Jewish believers really had to struggle with because we were talking about food sacrifice to idols. We could have a whole new discussion about the Jewish dietary laws that are clearly specified in the Old Testament by God. There are certain things you should and shouldn't eat. And Peter shows up and God offers him a buffet and Peter says, I'm not going to eat that. And God says, you're going to declare something to be unclean that I said was clean? Go talk to those Gentile believers and unbelievers. And if they give you a pork chop, eat the pork chop. In fact, it's interesting to me, the instructions that were given were don't ask. Really? You show up at the unbeliever's house, they plop the dish in front of you, and off you go. And it's actually an interesting verse because it says, don't ask, but if they make a big deal about it, then refrain. Because they're trying to use you to prove a point to somebody else, and don't get involved in that. But if you show up at your neighbor's house and they offer you a pork chop, go for it. But you have to be fully convinced and you have to do it by faith. (sighs) Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. What does this mean? Point number one. Who the heck are you to pass judgment on someone on a disputable matter? Why do I add that last clause? Because throughout the scripture, we are told to hold each each other accountable to correct doctrine and to correct behavior. If I see you running off with the cute young thing, I am supposed to whack you up the side of the head and tell you, don't do it. That's not being judgmental because it is taking the word of God and applying it And I am taking no joy and pleasure from doing it. Go read the book of Proverbs about giving a reproof. Repeatedly, it says, we need to be able to say, where you're going is wrong. Don't do it. And it's interesting because there's all kinds of verses about a reproof. And one of the best trainings for being able to give a reproof is being able to receive a reproof. At some point, somebody's going to come to you and say, I don't understand why you do it. Okay, you're right. How do we respond? Who the heck are you to tell me what to do? Well, we're working at this together. 
Remember back to chapter 13 when we talked about the body? We're all in this together. God has given us collectively everything that we need to mature in Christ. He hasn't necessarily given it all to you because he wants you to associate with you and associate with you. But wait, I don't even like, I don't care. Maybe that's where we'll start. So, step number one, who are you to judge in a disputable matter someone else? Point number two, we are servants of God. We are servants of God. What was the second verse that we alluded to a while ago? We will all be judged by God. You're not going to be judged by God on the behavior of your brother. You're going to be judged by God. Did you show love to your brother even though there was a dispute about a particular activity? Did you show love to them? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. It's not up to you. You are to help them. You are to encourage them. But look at the next sentence. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. What does that mean? It means that we are on this path of maturity. And right now, at this point in my life, I can't eat the meat. Because in my mind, it is still connected with idolatry. At this point in my life, I still can't eat the pork chop because I'm still connected to the Jewish community. I can't do it. So you want to come along with a two-by-four and whack me up the side of the head until I learn to do it. And God says, no. Let me mature them. Let me bring them down this path where they will say, you know what? It doesn't matter where that food came from. It really came from God. And to God, we will be thankful for whatever he has put in front of us. If you had asked me 30 years ago, is it a sin to drink a glass of wine with your dinner? I would have probably said yes. Do I believe that today? No. Is it because I've gotten lax and lazy and just too liberal? No. It means that I've studied the scripture and I know that I am not your judge and if your conscience is okay, my conscience is okay, go for it. Go for it. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Ultimately, Ultimately, it is God who is going to mature people. Now, we participate. That was the whole thing about the spiritual gifts and being the body. At some point, we become that counsel from godly, mature believers. At some point, somebody comes and asks us, what do you think? And we say, okay, what does the scripture say? We say, what is the Holy Spirit prompting you to believe? We tell them why we do what we do. But we don't pressure them to violate what they understand needs to be done. 
One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. What does this mean? Well, I was a good Jew. There were certain holy days. You know, I went out and slept in the tent on the Feast of the Tabernacles, and I did this on the Passover, and I did this on Yom Kippur, and I did this on this and this, and I had a very set schedule. And now I became a believer, and you know what? All of that's been fulfilled in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I don't have to follow this schedule. But I'm a new believer. And I'm not quite there yet. And you know, on the Day of Atonement, I I still feel a need to do certain things. Okay, whatever. We actually see this today. We had some good friends when we lived in Virginia who uh, did not celebrate Christmas. Why? Because all the days are supposed to be alike. Now, did they condemn us for doing it? No. Did we condemn them for doing it? No. I can let you in a little secret. We put up a Christmas tree at our place in Virginia. And then we came home for Christmas. And before we came home, we gave them the Christmas tree because their kids really liked it. <laughs> oh. They were okay with that. But you see the point? Certain days are holy. Certain days are not. You know what? God made every one of them. He did. At this point, we could have a lengthy discussion about the Sabbath day. Okay? First off, we could have a discussion about whether it's Saturday or Sunday with our Seventh-day Adventist friends. Uh, or we could just say, ah, see, this verse says that they're all the same. We shouldn't do it. The reality is, though, that God told us that you need a day of rest. If you work for this church... Sunday is not a day of rest. You know what they do? They take Monday off, and that's a good thing. Are they going to hell because they take Monday off and not Sunday? No, they're not. The principle is valid. They need a day of rest. If you want to take off Saturday, go for it. Sunday, great. Join us in worship. Monday, because you've got to work on, you get the picture, right? question we're almost out of time but we're going to continue this next week but here is the question in your life people you come in contact with what are the disputable matters come on somebody tell me that's not a disputable matter (laughs) what politics hmm we better not go there you'll just get me riled up oh (laughs) dancing you don't do that do you (laughs) yeah My, my mother went to Baylor and they didn't allow dancing so they danced across the street. <laughs> Is this hypocrisy or no? I I didn't say that. Playing cards. Playing cards. 
Oh, yes. We play lots of cards around our house. Go ahead. What is the difference between having a glass of wine and drunkenness? She says six glasses. It is interesting, no, this is, this is a good point. It is interesting that the scripture uses drunkenness as an illustration for being insensitive to spiritual things. Not that, as, a, as an illustration. Because when I am drunk, and by the way, I never have been drunk, so this is not speaking from experience. If I am drunk, I lack the mental capabilities to make godly decisions or any decision of any reasonable value. I do not have the mental capability. I do not have the physical capability. I am no longer able to be a godly human being, okay, male or female. Drunkenness is the point at which you have lost the ability to do what you know God wants you to do. I can sit there and I can have a glass of wine. I don't, but I could, you could have a glass of wine with your dinner and have a good conversation and everything would be okay. But if I had six bottles of wine, then all of a sudden I have lost control of myself. I can no longer be a godly person. Okay, That would be... Where is that? What is the blood content? I mean, the alcohol blood content level? I have no idea. Okay? You know where I am. I don't drink. But I also know people who it's not a problem with. Now, there are those who are alcoholics. That means they have a predisposition toward excessive behavior. And they probably shouldn't drink. They just shouldn't. There are people who have excessive propensities in other directions, and they should avoid those. We'll have a discussion about that in, in, the, in the days to come. But, but there is an acknowledgement that here's the bad, no, here's the good, and here's the bad. Where do you cross that line in the middle? I don't know. Okay? I think I know. I just abstain totally. <laughs> Solved that one, didn't I? Other people draw that line in a different place. Are they over here? No. It's the old argument of the fallacy of the beard. Y'all know that one? Go look it up. <laughs> We're out of time. We will continue this discussion next week. Paul tells us elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6.12, everything is permissible for me. That's a strange, bold statement. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible to me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Back to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I will present my body a living sacrifice. What does that mean? I will not let the desires of my body dictate my spiritual life. It doesn't say you kill the body. 
It just means it is not the master. I will not be conformed to the image of this world. What does that mean? The world takes things to excesses. I will not do it. But I will be transformed by the renewing of my mind. What does that mean? I will study the scripture. I will learn that anything that is not done of faith is sin. I will learn that I will be held accountable by God. And I will learn to learn how to become convinced in my own mind of what is right and what is wrong. And if you happen to settle in a different place because of your maturity, my maturity, your understanding, my understanding, then I will love you anyway. I run into this in teaching this class. I believe one of the dominant problems of our society today is basically we don't like rules. So I spend a lot of time talking about following the commands of God. But I also know, because I've talked with you, that there are some of you who have come out of very legalistic backgrounds. And I have to be very careful when I talk about the law of God because I know that it's been used as a club to beat you to a pulp. And I just have to accept that. I have to deal with the fact that you and I are at different places on this March of maturity. And I will tell you quite frankly, there are some of you that are much further along than I am. But I'm further along than some of you. That's just life. That's the nature of the church. What are we supposed to do at the end of the day? Love each other. Because in doing so, we have fulfilled the law. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you Thank you for the love that you showed us. I pray, Lord, that we would demonstrate that love to the believers around us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.